From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the big event and welcome to the intro. Kevin Fagan, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. So we are here because we're about to pack up these mics, pack up this mixing board, and go off to see David Perlman, 100 years old, science writer for The Chronicle, worked for The Chronicle from 1941 to 2017 with a few missing years in in between. Yeah, to go fight World War II. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we're going to go visit him at his house. I'm very excited about this. Before we do, though, I wanted you to just share, if you have one Perlman memory we can start off with, David Perlman memory, go. I have a there's there's a memory that stands out for me. Dave is the most humble guy you would ever want to meet. He's done everything. He's a he's a titan in his field of science writing and of, of journalism. Really, I got assigned to go over to cover the opening of the the refurbished Academy of Sciences. It had a new roof on it, the living roof, you know, fancy stuff inside. So Dave and I walk over there, and we go we go in the door. I'm just. Joe Schmo reporter. Here's Dave. You would have thought he had robes on and a halo <laughs> over his head. They, they treated him like he was God on earth, which to some extent he kind of is. He was opening doors for young people. He was asking them how they are. He was telling them about the alligators in the weird little pond that they had <laughs> and being just as polite and sweet as you could imagine. He is an amazing human being. Yeah. You know, we're in the archive right now and I would often find a photo or a story. Anytime I went over and asked him something, he always had time for me. I could show him a photo from like the 40s or 50s with some stray journalist there, and he could name everyone and tell me a story about him. Yeah, total command. Total command of memory. Yeah, only time he ever gets mad at me is when I would open the door. And uh, a couple times I made the mistake of opening a door for him, and he goes, don't open that door for me, you know, kind of shake his cane a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah, he'll open it for you, but, you know, (laughs) yeah. So I'm very excited. We're going to go see David Perlman. We're your concierge for culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Let me, let me formally welcome you. Welcome, Dr. Dave, to The Big Event podcast. We're here with Kevin Fagan and Steve Rubenstein, two of my colleagues. And David Perlman, is this your first podcast? I never heard the word until you began doing them at the Chronicle. I don't. I still don't know what they are because I've never listened to a podcast, as far as I know. Yeah. So, what they are is it sounds to me like you're just interviewing me or something like that. Yeah. Think of it like a radio show. Except all of our guests are, um, they can listen to it anytime they want. So when you're going for a long drive or you're walking the dog or on a jog, you flip on your podcast and, and there's Dr. Dave. Oh, I see. In other words, you're just listening to somebody telling you something more about a story they've just written yeah. or a story that they know or anything else. I think of it this way. So all those interviews you did over the years and all the interviews that we've all done here, um, when I do the interview, maybe the the reader's going to get two quotes or four quotes or eight quotes, but it's like 10% of the interview. 
the podcast is like 90% of the interview. Uh-huh. So maybe you don't want to hear 90% of the interview except for someone like you who we want to hear 90% of the interview. So we set up a bunch of mics in your living room. and uh, Okay. Yeah. And what I like is, Dave, when was the last time you did radio? Uh, the Paris Peace Talks after oh, World War II? the last time I did The first and last, well, not the last, but the first time I did radio was when I was working for the Paris Herald, the New York Herald Tribune, now dead as a New York newspaper, but then it was flourishing in New York and it had a newspaper in Paris called the European edition of the New York Herald Tribune, which has since been bought by the New York Times and continues. But at that time, uh, I had a friend who was working for something called the Mutual Broadcasting Company Big deal. And while I was a reporter on the Paris Herald, uh, he got a better job and asked me, would I like to make 50 bucks a week or something like that and uh, cover the Paris Peace Conference? Um, calling it a peace conference may be a mistake. It's so long ago, I can't remember. But I do remember going to meetings and listening to people the French and the British and the American State Department people, and I reported on it, both for the Paris Herald, I think, and also for the Mutual Broadcasting Company. And that was my first experience with radio, which as far as I was concerned, was kind of a, an amazing, uh, an amazing new technology because I was used to typing on a typewriter and writing articles that appeared in print. Uh, I knew something about the Chronicle because I had started there when I was first out of journalism school in 1940, yeah, 1940, I guess it was. And uh, I got a job as a copy boy at the Chronicle. Uh, That was my first introduction. So I moved out of the East, and I came to San Francisco, and uh, I was a copy boy, and then if you didn't get promoted from being a copy boy to being a reporter, why, you got fired. Uh, Luckily, (laughs) I got promoted to being a reporter, and that was all before World War II. The story that's still legendary around the Chronicle is... Shortly after uh, Pearl Harbor, you were sent up into the Chronicle Clock Tower to watch for <laughs> the possibility of Japanese air uh, airplanes know. coming in. And I understand that you spotted something that you thought and reported was a Japanese airplane, and it turned out to be what was it? Well, now I did. You can't exaggerate. We must never exaggerate <laughs> in journalism. <laughs> Was that fake As news you well know, <laughs> did, 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 didn't well, the Japanese airplane turned out to be the planet Venus? Is that correct? Well, correct? there oh, certainly okay. was legitimate, legitimate fear of enemy aircraft. Ah, okay. And I was up there on the Chronicle's uh, clock tower, up above Fifth and Market Street, Fifth and Mission, and uh, I did see a dim, a little light, uh, and I swore it was moving. And I called down to the city desk by a telephone landline that they had set up. And I said, hold on, I think something's moving. I think something's moving. 
and it may be a pearl, a plane. Well, it turned out to be a planet. I think it may have been, no, it wasn't Venus. I've forgotten what, what, uh, what planet it was. But it was, it was, a it fast was moving indeed planet. moving. That's right. But I sure had the city desk all in a panic. Uh, they assumed that maybe they would have to be reporting on an enemy attack. <laughs> there was no such thing yet. Well, I think you were looking out for us, and I appreciate uh, I appreciate you doing that. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> well you were just getting great. ready for your science beat a few years later. Oh, Stargazing. That was a long time later. I broke my leg skiing, and I've forgotten exactly what year that was. I think was. that was 1957. That might have been right, yeah, about then. And a year or two later, I was laid up for quite a while, and then... Uh, I went back to being a reporter, and uh, my kid's pediatrician gave me a book uh, called The Nature of the Universe by Fred Hoyle, very distinguished astronomer, British astronomer. And I, I told Dr. Oh my God, I've forgotten the name. He was a good friend, too. Well, anyway. Uh, I told him, I asked him, why are you giving me this book? I have no interest in astronomy. And he said, well, you'll read it and you'll like it. So I I did, and indeed I did like it. Liked it so much that I couldn't figure out why in the world, uh, what in the world do astronomers do? How do they work? And uh, I went up to Mount Hamilton which is right above the Stanford and right above San Jose, and I met an astronomer. His name, my God, I even remember his name, George Herbig. He later, much later, went on to to uh, the University of Hawaii, and I said to him, uh, uh, "What do you do for a living?" In in a, a more circumspect way. And uh, Dr. Herbig said, well, I'm interested in stars that are born in the Orion Nebula. <laughs> and I thought, my God, I thought stars have lives and they have deaths and they get born. And how, what a romantic idea. And I felt that that was so inspiring that I think I, I did write a story about the work that Jar Dr. Herbig made, and uh, and that was the beginning of being interested in science uh, and writing about it for the Chronicle, and so uh, that's what I did, off and on for a while, and then gradually it became something permanent, and that's what I've been doing the rest of my life. Or you could have specialized in anything. You could have had your pick. You could have specialized in courts or education or sports. So what, what, was no, it that drew you to, people, what was it that drew you to science? No, I couldn't have done all that because people were already covering the courts and city hall, and that didn't interest me anyway. But it, may, it was a matter of my persuading the office that, hey, there's a lot of science going on around here. Let's... Why don't we cover some of it? Dave, when you were a young man, 
radio was the technological amazement of the age. And now you've covered, and just until recent years, <laughs> they covered this kind of exploration. Well, don't, me see, don't make me seem so old. <laughs> radio was not a technological marvel. I mean, I, when I was a kid, I was listening to Uncle Don. Okay. Uh, Uncle Don had a kid's program. So it wasn't quite as remarkable, mm. but uh, it was it was certainly relatively new. Yes. You We're, make three billion miles away seem like it's right around the corner. It is right genuine, around the corner. You're genuinely fascinated and thrilled, and you can convey that to not only the three of us here in this room with you, but also to the readers of the Chronicle. But there are some people... There are some yahoos that are going to say, what do we need to spend a few billion dollars to find out about stuff three billion miles away? And when you hear that, what do you answer? Because we have plenty of money. <laughs> we have, uh, we don't, we pretend that we don't have enough money to do all of the work that is required to uh, minimize global warming. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, we got plenty of money really for that, and there are still people who fight that issue in Congress and elsewhere. But there's un it, what we spend on things that we don't need <laughs> is minimal uh, compared with what we can, can spend on exploring space which is only one aspect of all the kinds of science that we ought to be spending money on. But, you know, these are our nearest neighbors, and I would like to know what I'd like to spend a nickel if I could get, walk next door and uh, talk to my neighbor next door. And these people are a billion or two or several miles away. I'd want to talk to them, too. Well, we will one day. Dave, I just got to tee you up on one thing. Over over the years, every once in a while, I'll walk into your office and say, Dave, what do you think of people who deny science, who say science is bunk, and that we shouldn't cover it at all, and that uh, uh, you know evolution is, is ridiculous, and we should not pay attention to it? Well, as far as I'm concerned, I hope that those people who say that have come in with all their limbs in, intact and all and and never have had appendicitis and never have had any problems with their vision or their or any part of their functioning bodies because all of that came out of the most basic kind of science research and uh, that is true and will be true in a few years, I mean a very few years, before people, if they're sitting, if they have a house near Ocean Beach and they can't get down to the basement because it's fl flooded as sea level rises, then they'll say, well, why didn't we do something about that? Because yeah. that that's coming in another generation and it's certainly obvious, it should be obvious to people that the more research 
that we can do and the more uh, examination of all of nature's phenomena, uh, the better off we're going to be, far apart from improving our own brains. But we have certainly a lot to learn that will forestall the kind of damage to our own planet and our own and the terrain we live on and the water we drink. Uh, all of those things uh, can be taken care of uh, with adequate preparation, which means spending the money that we have and can develop, uh, which is, will be required and are, requir require, are required now. Before I retired, which was what, a few years ago? Mm -hmm. Maybe three, two years 2017, ago? 2017, right? I can't remember. Barely two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Barely two years, you said? Barely. Yeah. Wow. And you are missed every day. And if you'd like <laughs> to come back... Well, I'd go back in, in a minute if I could had two things operating what, it, what I would need to have. I'd need to be able to walk, and I'd need to be able to remember things a little more clearly than I do right now. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Your recall's pretty sharp. I just got to hear you, though. It, 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 you would get somewhat pithy when, when the, the, the trend would come up against science. Over the last decade or so, there's been a trend of people saying, ah, science is bunk. Does it make you mad? You're supposed to be an objective reporter, but I think it makes you mad because I think I've heard you say it makes you mad. Nah, I never get mad. <laughs> <laughs> I never get mad. I get mad when when one of the editors of the Chronicle uh, cuts a story of mine. Oh, there you go. <laughs> no, but it does. It, it frustrates me that with all of the evidence piling up and piling up and piling up, and there's still resistance to almost anything scientific, some people. I just got to ask something. You're talking about change? How is journalism different today to what it was in the 1940s when you started out as a reporter? Is there anything fundamentally different about it, aside from the, the machines we use? As a matter of fact, we're people, and basically we don't change. I mean, our physiology is unchanging, essentially. Uh, no, we're, you know, all of the new, everything that's new today has had its predecessor. So what we think of as new today, things that I find it difficult to cope with, uh, podcasts, for example. <laughs> I barely know what a podcast is, but you guys, the public, is using them more and more and more. The Chronicle is using more and more digital, is providing more and more digital information. Well, digital information, to me, is something I can barely cope with but I acknowledge it, recognize it, and know that it's only the beginning. Mm -hmm. It will be, ways of communication will be very different 
in the near future. And you guys, younger reporters, younger readers of the Chronicle, will be reading somewhere in different ways, will be gathering information in new and unexplored ways in the very near future. Because the 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 kind of radio I <laughs> radio reporting uh, was new in my you know in the twenties and thirties and forty even the forties and then along came television anyway naturally yeah. things change does, does the essence of the job change does the who what where when why the answering the basic questions that any reporter answers is that does that change? The technology changes, surely. The technology of finding out who and what and when and where, and then that's that is that's changing in a sense, simply because we use different instruments. You know, I I came out of an era when we had a pencil and a pad. And we took notes when people made wrote read uh, made speeches, uh, and now you guys all use cell phones to record and transmit, uh, and that that's the way reporters work today. <laughs> did you did you like working in San Francisco? Because you left, you went to Europe, you were in New York, and you came back here. Was there something about San Francisco that that you liked and felt like home? Well, the re I came to San Francisco because I thought it would be on the way to being. Uh, this was before World War II, and I thought it would be on the way to being to getting to China. That's where I hoped I would wind up, but I never got there. Wow! Uh, but also. It was a very romantic city, and when I got here, I found I loved it. I also happened to meet a girl, got married, and had three kids. And uh, then World War II came along, and I went overseas. And my wife then worked for the Chronicle. She died many, many years ago. But uh, there were all kinds of reasons to stay in San Francisco. And I'm never sorry I did, and I'm still glad to be here. I saw I saw maybe a year or two before you left, you had a double byline. It was you at age 96 or 97 with Ellen Hewitt, who was, I think, 20, 22 at the right, time or 23. Right, yeah. Did you like working with young people? Did you enjoy the youth that just kept coming oh, through yeah. the newsroom? Oh, sure. As a matter of fact... <laughs> I had a few interns. Uh, there was a program that was supported by the American Association for the Advancement for the Advancement of Science, and I was able to have a few of those interns under me, one at a time, theoretically for three months, and one of them went to the, uh, uh, left the Chronicle. She was so good that they insisted she stay as a reporter. And she was a reporter on the Chronicle for quite a few years, had a couple of other jobs after that, and then went on 
and was on the New York Times, uh, wrote a lot of science stuff there, was one of their editors there, and uh, where she is now, I'm not sure. Uh, but in the Chronicle, on the Chronicle, when I had worked with a younger reporter on some science story, oh, sure, God, often I'd work together with a younger reporter. As a, this is kind of a sad story. For, a long, for 15 years or more, I covered the AIDS epidemic, evidence for which began here in California. And I can tell you that story if you want. Yeah. Uh, One of the first to report on that, if not the first. Yes. Uh, It began in 1951, May perhaps, I think, and a report in the in a publication of the Federal Health Department called the MMWR, I remember the initials, Morbidity and Mortality Report. And it reported on the cases, five cases of a, of a strange and little-known type of uh, pneumonia called pneumocystis carinii pneumonia. All five occurred among young gay men in Los Angeles. And I remember thinking, I get the, used to get that every week, that publication. And I, uh, I wondered if anything like that had occurred in San Francisco. And I called our health department here to ask if our health epidemiologist had encountered any such situation here. And she told me, yes, indeed, she had seen five similar cases here. And uh, I wrote a brief article on it. But then a young reporter on the Chronicle and I began covering what began the AIDS epidemic. And that young reporter was Randy Schultz, a wonderful, excellent reporter, terrific guy. And he really had insights into the gay community because Randy was gay himself. But he was a very good reporter. And he and I covered aspects of the AIDS epidemic here in San Francisco and then around the world. Randy went to places, if I recall correctly, he went to Africa. He did. And Mm -hmm. he went to a couple of other places in Europe and primarily focused, of course, on San Francisco. And I was covering the medical and scientific aspects of it, perhaps more looking at the science. Randy was looking at the policy implications. And the two of us worked together for many, many, many years, 
15 years, I bet. Randy is dead now. I remember going to his funeral, speaking at his funeral. But we worked very close together. Most of the times, if I worked with a younger reporter, it would be on one specific story. But it was just Randy and I covering the AIDS epidemic. And that was a great experience because I was working with a young but really superb reporter, and uh, that was a privilege for me. And that was uh, a, that's, that's a different story, though. And Dave, that was in 1981, wasn't it? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, it was. Oh, the epidemic was first de- detected, or the disease was first detected in the five cases reported in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Then we wrote about it, I wrote about it in San Francisco that same day or the day after. Yeah. And uh, those were the first reports. Maybe mine was the first, I don't know. Uh, but soon the New York Times recognized it anyway. And it became a, well, we know the story of the yeah. epidemic. Yeah, of course. I, you, we've taken up so much of your time already. I, I was hoping we could all ask one more question, though. I just wanted to, 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 to hear from you a little bit about, I, I know Steve and I and, and Peter, I, I'm sure you've done, whenever I went into your office, which was a, a paper it's a goddamn mess. <laughs> a mess. A lovely mess. <laughs> the corner of the room. And I didn't feel like I was talking to some guy who had, you know, done decades of work and was kind of burned out. No, you were all. You have always been very enthusiastic and and informative. I I had to write about AIDS as well, far long after you and Randy did your thing. Uh, but you were helpful. You would immediately go find stuff that I needed, and you would. Uh, you're fun. Why are you so fun all these years later? Well, I wanted to be a reporter all my life. Yes. And, you know, I my first reporting job was on a newspaper in Schenectady, New York. When I was 18 years old, I was in I was on an undergraduate at Columbia, and I got this summer job on the Schenectady Sunday Sun, a newspaper yes. that's long dead. Uh and that was my first job as a reporter. And uh, I just had wanted to be a reporter since I was, I think, about, must have been about 12 or 13 years old. And I think you, want- you like reporting, and I think you like reporters. You've, you always feel at home when you're in a newsroom. Is that well, right? Well, you guys are my reporters are my best friends. <laughs> <laughs> They're the people I've loved and worked with all my life. And we've loved you back, Dave. Oh, yeah. I can't say the word. But <laughs> you could say it. We could just put an explicit oh, label bullshit. on the podcast. That's Thank right. You. That's right. You know, I remember when I was teaching a fourth grade summer school class, and you were a guest speaker there, and you came to talk to the fourth graders, and you said you had to cut it short because the pictures from Jupiter were coming in, and you had to get back to the paper. I think you were in your 90s uh, then, in your early 90s, and uh, you said you were late, and you started hustling double time. And the, one of the fourth graders turned to me and said, that old fella is running. You were that excited about getting back to the paper to make sure you got back in time 
for the pictures from Jupiter. And how do you how do you get so excited? How do you stay so young and fresh? And what is it about this job that has kept kept you so vital? There's a specialty in medicine called gerontology. And I suggest that you ask a gerontologist <laughs> why the hell I wish I were back on a daily newspaper right now and covering stories with you guys. Yeah. Now, how can I explain it? It's been fun, and it's been a challenge. Reporting is a challenge mm. to get it accurate, get it fast, get it written in a way that people want to read it, and you pick by luck or some other reason, uh, you pick an area that you can't help but have fun doing it, just as all Chronicle reporters have fun covering their specialties, whatever it happens to be. Mm. I've always found it absolutely inspiring to have you in the, the corner of the room uh, knowing that Dave was there, Dave still does it decades after decade after decade and still loves it, it makes me want to work harder. It always made me want to work harder, just having you there. Well, I won't say that's bullshit, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, I thank true. you, though. It's true, though, Dave. I, thank you both. I love you all. I wish you were back there right now. Well, we wish you were, too. <laughs> So I, I, on this podcast, I'm always telling people, subscribe to The Chronicle, and not just because we want your money and it's a transaction, but, but to support your local news. If you don't subscribe to The Chronicle, give to KQED or whatever your local news is, you know, value these, these institutions. I wanted to ask you if you're still a subscriber to The Chronicle, and uh, if you have any messages to our subscribers. I still get The Chronicle every day. I wouldn't miss it, and uh, I will continue subscribing to the Chronicle till the day I die. And maybe there's a way of sending it to the afterlife. <laughs> I don't know whether there is a a an, a, a posthumous posthumous edition, but if there is, I will be reading it. Uh, no, seriously. Well, I want to thank you so much for welcoming us into your home and sharing these stories. But but even before that, just being an inspiration, and, and Kevin touched on it, you're such a positive person, and it makes me feel a little bad if I'm not feeling the same way and like my job a little more. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very much, sir. Well, well, listen, this is fun. I hope I didn't fill you full of bullshit. Uh, but uh, <laughs> There's that word again. <laughs> yeah. Well... I thought all newspapers were profane. Yeah. <laughs> Newspaper men, I should say. Oh, and yeah, I absolutely. Say it's a useful women word in too. our racket. Women, too. Yes, sir. Women, too. Well, thank right, you. Listen, I, I hope I gave you something you can use. You, you gave me exactly what I was hoping for and a lot more. And, and I thank you again. And uh, our readers Not thank you. And the newsroom thanks you. And uh, You can explain that my <laughs> raspy voice is just that of an old, old, old man. Well, thanks again, sir. All and, right. Uh, yeah. I had fun. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. For wanting to do this. And happy birthday to you. Thanks. Thank you for that, too. Yeah. 
All right. Thanks, guys. All okay, right. Thank you. Okay. It's been a pleasure. Uh, the, this was fun for me. We're good. We're I'm so glad. Yeah. Like Thanks for letting me bring all this equipment in your house. All right, kid. Darling, it's 2 a.m. It's time for closing. The cops, they're all sideways. And I think you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guests, David Perlman, Steve Rubenstein, and Kevin Fagan. This episode was produced by me, Peter Hartlob. Senior producer is King Kaufman. Executive producer, Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album, Community. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.